Welcome back to the March Mad Men podcast. We're in the midst of our loving autopsy of 1974's Black Christmas. Let's join the conversation already in progress, shall we? And we start to develop this whodunit aspect of the film, which I think we're going to have to discuss because uh, Jess is telling the boyfriend that uh, she's pregnant and she doesn't want it. And now this is, of course, the first time that he's hearing about this. So Claire's already dead. The whole idea that he becomes unhinged because of the news that he's being given uh, doesn't hold water at all. And yet, like, uh, the film absolutely plays this red herring card with him potentially being the killer uh, to the hilt time and time again throughout the rest of the movie. And, in fact, I think it's somewhat instrumental to the ending of of the movie. And yet, like, how could he possibly have been the one who killed Claire? Guys, how do you feel about this? I don't know. I mean, like, look, he's clearly, like, unstable. Like, I think you get that pretty quickly in general terms. I agree that, like, the motivating factor being the pregnancy doesn't necessarily add up in terms of making him a red herring. I mean, what this movie does is it offers you no other options. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I really think it wants us to think that it's him. But at this point... Like, the fact that he would have smothered Claire and then gone back to his piano and gotten this news, I I just, it's hard for me to imagine being in the audience that first time and being like, oh yeah, it's it's him. All right, so uh, Margot Kidder is like giving a kid beer in in this scene where the dad is on the phone, Uh, Claire's dad is on the phone, and she's like, I think he's getting schnockered. And, I mean, this is classic, like, twisted humor. Here's to be champagne, actually. Ah, yeah, you're right. It does. Yeah, you can't get kids to drink beer, dude. They don't. They don't like the taste. But champagne, they're uh, sorry. <laughs> but, but what? That'll get them in the van. Oh wait, I'm I'm sorry. <laughs> Cut that. <laughs> no, I was gonna say on on Cure Delay real fast. Um, uh, if this was a Giallo film, it would have been him. Right. Like I feel like that's what that would have been the reveal. And so the fact that. Uh, uh, the fact that they that, that isn't the case, I I think works to this film's credit. Now we are getting Billy calling back again. Yes. Where did you put Agnes, Billy? And uh, Jess is on the phone, and you know she's upset. And there's a classic line: "What your mother and I must know is, you know, apparently where where Agnes is." And in juxtaposition to how Margot Kidder handed it, she really, like, panics and just slams the phone down. <laughs> this cop. Oh, yeah. This cop. He yes. is hilarious. Yeah, the dim-witted cop. But, yeah, I, I mean, my point is that I think there is a running theme through these films about how authority figures are dealt with. Yep. So here we have at least this father who is concerned, who is sort of, even if he's ineffectual, is at least sort of trying to get to the bottom of it. The cops are kind of buffoons. Um, I mean, I mean, uh, John Saxon sort of is more effectual. I mean, he's sort of more akin to um, Dr. Loomis, say. But in all of these films, the authority figures are not someone you can turn to for help. 
Like it leans into that idea that part of what makes these films so scary is that young people are isolated in many ways just by the fact that they're young and that that leaves them with no one to turn to when things get really scary. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think clearly one of the themes of this movie is adults being disgracefully derelict of their duty to the previous generation. Again, a la Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, but it's also played for laughs here, unlike, for instance, that movie. And, uh, you know, somewhat in the spirit of uh, Return of the Living Dead, which Vic and I, that's why my beer was at his house, we had the pleasure of watching together recently. (laughs) (laughs) And not at all related to me drinking a dirty Shirley while talking to you guys while my kids are sleeping in the house next door. (laughs) But this movie balances humor and horror, like, so well. Uh, it, it it really is like just a, a filmmaker who's equally comfortable uh, on both sides, flip sides of, of that that same coin. And it, it's pretty rare to, to see. It's part of what makes this movie such a, a classic. I just wanted to say that while Vic was making that point, I did, uh, as promised, uh, track down the original 1970 poster titled Express Thyself. Uh, also known as the poster in which the granny is giving the finger. Wow. Well done. Can you send me a link for that, please? <laughs> 23 by 33 uh, inches, and uh, apparently it's a, it's it's passed through eBay a few times, so you, you, can, you can track it down. I can't find any active sales, but just so you know, that poster is, is actually a bit of a collector's item, it appears. Well, 23 by 33 is going to be hard to frame, so never mind. <laughs> <laughs> but thanks anyway, Rich. It's fine. Oh no, I got it for forty bucks. <laughs> That's fantastic. God bless the internet. I do love that. I do love that. So in in this scene that um, we're paused on, the dad makes clear that his daughter being shacked up with a boyfriend would not be much consolation. Uh, again, like hitting the idea that he's a, a really conservative dude. And I, I'm not sure what we do with it beyond it being funny, but we're doing something with this with this father character. I, I, I'm not sure, like, it just boils down to, to being ineffectual. Um, but I, I can't tell you anything more profound about it right now. Well, it's like, what What does he do, like, just inter- as a character? What does he do to, like, move our plot forward in, in, in any way? Oh, yeah, I don't really... I mean, he's present for, like, a lot. And he just seems to be this passive, disapproving observer for the most part. And, like, in a way, I think what makes him interesting is that he's not actively scolding or judging i mean yeah he has a couple snarky comments and stuff but he he he's so passive that he he doesn't even function as like you would think in a sort of a broad comedic sense that he'd be waving the shame fingers and you know just getting livid and yelling at mrs mac or the girls or something and you know like he would have at least like one big you know tirade about how like his daughter uh if 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 
he entrusted her to them and if they had taken better care of her this never would have happened the movie never goes anywhere like that well i mean i will say that in the if you think about the mike kuchak school of slasher movie structure mm-hmm. that what you have is one person who is saying hey something's wrong here before any of our protagonists have actually figured it out so i think that's that's almost worth something that there that that someone's acknowledging hey somebody's missing something's wrong which in in sort of a friday the 13th movie nobody would acknowledge until you know 35 minutes into the film well yeah we're 26 minutes in and and they're at well, least we're, we're 26 minutes in now but it was you know it was 6 minutes ago that he was waiting for her and then showed up at the sorority house. Right, right. Well, I mean, yeah, the idea that they wouldn't be at the police station, like, they would just assume that she went to meet him or something, right? Like Exactly. If, yeah, that is true. I mean, I'm not sure, like, if you wanted to connect the dots, like, does did them going to the police station actually help anyone? Um, I don't think... I don't think this leads to any kind of benefit to any of the characters other than the fact that like there's a relationship with this cop and then with the uh, with, of course, Detective Fuller, John Saxon, uh, you know, just to grease the skids when when things get more dire uh, down the road a bit. But as we've all you know discussed, uh, how much help did these girls ever really even get from the cops? It's you know pretty pretty debatable. Grease the skids. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where that came from, but uh, yeah. I don't even know what it means. <laughs> Making it easier to get there, you know. <laughs> All right. That's- that's some, that's some pretty mixed metaphors in this podcast, okay? If you don't know that by now. <laughs> I mean, it makes a smoother ride. Like, if you don't have greased skids, you're not going to, like, uh, <laughs> you're not going to get down the road. These are these are truly Southern Californians. People, people that haven't seen snow in 10 years. Being like, uh, I don't know, greased, you should grease the skid on your dog sled, right? I did a rod, what? That's kind of what I'm picturing, you know, like uh, the things at the bottom of a snowmobile. Uh... Yeah, I follow your your meaning. I mean, look, I I do think that it's like, if memory serves me correctly, it's that they're sort of like a stab. Like John Saxon basically notices that there's like a correlation between two different events and that that's the thing that ultimately gets his attention. Yeah. Right. This, This being one of the two events. And so, like, that's fine. This, this like, establishes that there's a problem. And then when he gets the call later about the fact that the, the this woman's getting harassing phone calls, I think that's when he kind of makes the connection of, like, something has to be done about this. And this is yeah. a good time to mention, because we keep talking about it, um, and we are paused, that I don't think that the John Saxon character is an, either an idiot or doesn't care. Like, Nothing that I see in observing him at work shows like an, a, a cop that doesn't have the dedication to literally, I don't know what his normal hours are, but like this guy is up all night doing what he can. And 
I do think he goes down this blind alley with the boyfriend that isn't isn't productive. But I mean, I think we can all agree that it it's not completely illogical. And even uh, uh, Jess herself really comes to suspect him to the point that spoiler she kills him in the end. So. It, it's not as though it's like, oh, idiot Lieutenant Fuller, you know, like he, he honestly like he's a charismatic and uh, admirable police character in this movie. It's just ironic or funny or whatever you want to call it that he doesn't actually help anybody. <laughs> Just, just like John Saxon in every other movie in our in our tournament. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's funny. All right. Okay. Let's, hey, let's hit play. I, I want to see the rest of the scene. I'm, I'm excited about it. All right. Five, four, three, two, one. She cracks that beer. We're filling out I forms. Mean, a, a Miller Lite, John, I believe. No, I'm <laughs> Apparently it's the Canadian Miller Lite. I saw I saw Labatt's on it. What's what's Labatt's? I forget what that. It, well, it's worth Labatt, noting. Labatt's blue, yeah. It's worth noting that though this film is clearly in Toronto and there's lots of clues like that, like they keep putting American flags around because you really, if you wanted to sell a Canadian movie internationally or you know even in the US you needed to pretend that it was set in the US because people didn't want to watch a movie set in Canada I, I'm not joking this is, this I, is where they fucked up with the uh, My Bloody Valentine right maybe yeah. yeah I still don't want to watch a movie set in Canada <laughs> <laughs> so yeah there's Mrs. Mac finding yet another stash a bottle out of the closet going broad with the comedy once again but here we see how rattled margot kidder really is when we cut back to the police station she's she has this facade going and she goes for the humor and fucks with this cop but you know she's actually worried about claire who wasn't even really her friend or maybe she was i don't know but that her enjoyment of making this cop the fool is quite real and of course, it's... this is the classic fellatio sequence. <laughs> Wait, maybe I should explain that. I don't know. Rich, you, you explain it. The audience can't see this. <laughs> so, she, so she's giving fellatios the exchange to to a, uh, a a phone number, essentially, which which to me also just like it that extends past my understanding of how phones work. Like I was definitely, you know, I may be old, but I was born after the, the period in which you had like, uh, like name extensions on phone lines. Right. So I actually don't even like fully get this joke. Like I know that that is a thing that phones used to have, but I don't know what it means. Yeah, I'm not old enough for that either. Like where the actual phone numbers were short, but then the exchange, I guess, was like a longer part that you needed to put on at the front of it but in any event like she claims there's this uh fe this new exchange and then she spells out fellatio for him and this uh naive or innocent uh dim-witted cop like just takes it at, at face value 
and is mocked for it later. So there's this hockey mask scene uh, where, like, the boyfriend, the guy that uh, could have been cast in the Cure Delay role, uh, he's he's wearing this. He's he's a goalie, you know. Um, and I, I it crossed my mind, like, was somebody ever watching this slasher movie going like, "Damn, I I wouldn't want some psycho coming after me wearing that mask." I mean, at least it put it in the zeitgeist. It is a weird look. Like you're right. Like you see it, and it's and they really put it front and center. Like it's kind of jarring the cut cut to that. It's kind of weird to watch Olivia Hussey do these line reads because you just look at her and you, and you just you think Shakespeare. She has this theatrical intonation and of course the the pedigree. Wasn't there isn't there some story behind this like she took the role because like a psychic told her that yeah. she would appear in a Canadian film that would make her a lot of money? Yeah, it, that's absolutely true. Yeah, she she went to like a you know palm reader or some kind of psychic, and they said you will be in a movie in Canada and it will be very successful. And then they sent her this script, and she's like, oh yeah, there it is, got to do it. So yeah, this mother is reporting her high school kid Janice, the clarinet player, going missing. And uh, do you guys think this is related at all or just a, a coincidence that they do find her body in the park? She she is dead. I, it's certainly implied that it is connected in some way, but I don't think we ever get anything conclusive, right? No, we don't. I mean, the girl was 13. The guy came, the killer came from somewhere, obviously. He's been loose. I mean, there's just like so little backstory about his immediate whereabouts but it 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 fits his mo right to 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 kill uh uh, i mean he he killed his they called her his sister the baby uh so i I don't think he has like a high bar for for the age of of people he'll he'll murder like they don't have to be 21 or something look i don't know if you guys have ever been in toronto around christmas time but it's a fucking bloodbath okay (laughs) (laughs) this is just friday night in toronto (laughs) just bodies everywhere (laughs) oh so you know that big fur coat that the guy is wearing uh the hockey guy apparently his mother gave him that coat and it's in like a couple of movies that the guy was in like he just brought that wardrobe it's it's preposterous. It's the it's an outrageously ridiculous coat. <laughs> so this is where Margot gets so drunk that she's pushed herself to a new level, and now instead of everyone just kind of like enjoying it, his her sorority sisters, uh, people are taking notice, and challenge. Challenge accepted, Margot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like her friend that like just cheers her on when she says off color things, the Andrea Martin Phyllis character. Uh when she talks about the turtles who screw for three days without stopping. Um like this is just that blase persona of hers as a self defense mechanism. I've seen it all. It's giving way. Because she's she knows she has a really bad feeling like that, that this is really bad what's going on but she unfortunately instead of fighting back she kind of checks out she gives up the fight that she she should be fighting and it's it's sad those turtles really have sex for three days 
Will you in the next commercial Google that and see if that's true? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Rich, we want we want that in your search history, not ours, please. <laughs> but like the she's saying these crazy things and that, that dad guy, like he's not getting all, he's not mugging with disapproval, you know, like he has really a restrained performance that I, I think is the right choice. It's, it's just very uncomfortable. Like yeah. it's, it's like, uh, you know, it's like, who's afraid of Virginia Wolf? Like, you're just like, Jesus. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, she is, she's the real mother hen here, the tough one. And she's taking this personally and she's she's so drunk that you know she cracks and her, you know Barb for God's sakes Phyllis says you know who's who's always enjoyed her she can't even keep rooting for Barb. But it's an interesting point, John, that that she is. The fact is that she's so unsettled by the things that have happened up to this point that this is how she's reacting to it. She's a college student. She's not supposed to be the mother hen. She shouldn't have to assume this role. But she does because the the house mother is an incompetent drunk and faced with this level of responsibility, she just gets hammered. Exactly. I mean, it, it's actually very relatable. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it's it's powerfully sad as you see her meekly retire. You know, like she has this conflict and, you know, she's been forcefully told to to go to bed and and she realizes wow okay damn well if phyllis is telling me that if you've been inspired to do that maybe i am off the rails and you know she knows she's she's crossed a line uh we should pause it here because we haven't talked at all about the boyfriend and what's going on with him and there's a couple scenes here that we we need to mention so previously uh we saw him at his recital and he's playing his piano and like there's like these judges watching him perform and he's clearly off his game because of the news that Claire is pregnant I'm uh, not Claire that Jess is pregnant with his baby and doesn't want to have it and he he he's almost like self-sabotaging on purpose is kind of how I read it and you see one of the judges be like he gives that face where he's like ooh that's that's not that's not good uh, during this critical piano recital and the boyfriend just furiously pounding the keys in a way that shows he already knows he's failed and it does sound ob- objectively terrible and, and insane uh, the art of a madman uh, so that leads us to the scene that we just you know missed and, and, and paused right after where the boyfriend destroys the piano the university's piano with like a I don't know you know a mic stand or something and it's a big move i mean this is a pretty strong indication that uh bro might be violent well and is the discordant piano score like are they trying to point us toward him i don't know what do you guys Mm. think of that i certainly saw like a correlate between the two well, I, I thought it was a harp when I first listened to it, so I, I did not pick up on that. <laughs> I mean, my, my, my assumption from a purely like mechanical producing level is that the boyfriend's storyline ended up influencing the approach they took with the score. Um, um, but that's a guess. John, now I want to see a scene of Kier Delea, like smashing a harp with a... <laughs> <laughs> with a mic stand. 
like just imagining him playing the harp like yeah. furiously is is pretty comical. <laughs> you get a lot of harps in horror movies. Yeah, I, I think we we might be onto something here. <laughs> while while we're paused, not that I want to move beyond him. But I I did want to talk about just briefly the juxtaposition of the comedy with the horror in this movie, which is weird because it's such it's two movies like there's two prevailing moods in this film and it just toggles back and forth between them like the the dark side is so scary and coldly clinical in its detachment that the kind of thing that I associate with Kubrick and specifically The Shining. Um, but somehow the movie weaves this like broad humor into that ice cold prevailing consciousness and it doesn't commit to one perspective or the other but I think the ending confirms what the dominant viewpoint of the narrative really is and it's not the satirical one it's not the comedic one and I do want to point out that the majority of the humor in the film revolves around the tragic flaws of the various characters. It's them revealing their weaknesses to us through their through what plays as jokes that seem harmless at the time, but it all adds up to the larger statement that our flaws doom us in the end. And it is there's, you know, make no mistake, it's the characters' various flaws and weaknesses that make them vulnerable and end up killing them it's an interesting idea i mean like i i mean that that's certainly like in carrying with the with the genre overall i'm curious to sort of put that to the test like i'm trying to think of like margot kidder and, and where her character is heading and like how true that is for her margot kidder i mean i think we just covered that right i mean she's the one that she drinks too much goes to bed you know what happens from there, right? I mean, like she's she she's made vulnerable by the fact that she couldn't handle this and gets drunk, goes to bed, and is killed in her sleep. Wakes up, passes her exams, and becomes a famous doctor. Wait, what? <laughs> Yeah. She she no, becomes a, a successful therapist, and she yeah. helps Laurie Strode work through the trauma of her experiences. <laughs> Rich, I mean, were you talking about Olivia Hussey there? I mean, like, I'm really shocked that you you wouldn't think like that. Margot Kidder's flaws are front and center. No, I was. I mean, I'm just saying, like, we're we're, we're talking down the line in the in the movie, and so I was just kind of like processing like what you were saying. But, oh, like, okay. I'm not saying you're. Oh, I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying like I, I wasn't thinking through that lens as I watched the film. So well, yeah, is, she's John, not dead what, yet. What would you say? What would you say? Or is is Olivia Olivia Hussey's flaw? What what is her character's flaw in this? Her accent. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, she loves, she loves Romeo too much. <laughs> per, I mean, perhaps it is that she falls for like the the idea that her tormented boyfriend, who she doesn't love, could be responsible 
for for what's going on even though there's plenty of evidence like even she she says at a certain point like oh yeah he was he was there for one of the calls right and yet mm-hmm. like she when push comes to shove she commits to the fact that that he's the killer and that that is a tragic miscalculation because everyone the police believe that uh that that that's the case and she ends up basically sedated and much like margot kidder that's how presumably now we don't see what happens but you know presumably that's how she meets her end as well right that's dumb that's a compelling case that's what i'm here for (laughs) all right uh anything else or uh should we should we move on did you guys like the boyfriend anything you want to say about like we we saw him bomb his uh recital and now then we saw him you know turn violent on on the piano so like do you think this is totally working that it's supposed to be tracking that we're like seeing how this guy is a a serious candidate to be the bad guy in the movie i mean they're, they're definitely trying pretty hard yeah. Like I, I don't. I, if anything, I'd say that they're overplaying their hand, and that's like the thing that makes him seem the least like the killer to me. I mean, I agree with your logic puzzles, but 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 to me, it's like it feels like they're really laying it on thick with him. Um, yeah. I will say I, I don't I don't I don't know that the 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 boyfriend who desperately wants to have the baby is like a character archetype that I've encountered a whole lot in any kind of film it's an interesting angle like you know pro-life boyfriend um well their conversation yeah the conversation i i think we're already past it but that that they have and uh he, he says something along the lines of like how could you possibly think that this was your decision right um and it it is kind of it, it feels really shocking but and yet like you know not to obviously get topical and relevant and political but at this particular moment in history just you know the very question of of a woman's right to make that decision herself it's so fascinating that from 1974 to 2022 that that went from this kind of quaint um you know moment in time kind of a situation to being hotly contested and questioned as a as a right once again that is uh clearly one of the more provocative and ahead of its time elements of the film well so this this was 74 like yeah the the road decision was the road decision was in 73 I'm guessing they were filming this around. So it's like it was certainly in like the discourse at the time. Um, so well, I guess it's not entirely surprising well, here. But but it, it, it's it, an it's an interesting debate. It's just interesting because like yeah. how many movies like depict this kind of thing in their plot? Yeah, it's a it's a heavy topic to dump in the sort of in the middle of this this slasher film. I agree. He's in he's a very obvious red herring. But I wonder at this time period how much when you were watching a film like this were you looking for the red herring? You know what I mean? Like, or were you just watching this being, you know, 
kind of as a straightforward, like, oh, okay, he's the guy. I don't know. Yeah, but 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 we've been one of the things we've observed with these films, and certainly in like the Giallo tradition, and even like the first Friday the Thirteenth does this is this sort of whodunit e aspect, right? Even if it's somewhat ridiculous. I mean. This is, but this is earlier than that. So that well, I mean, early, certainly earlier than Friday the Thirteenth, sort of in the midst of the Giallo uh, movement. So that's what I guess that's what I don't know is is like we look at it or like. How obvious is it that they're making him the red herring? I wonder if you were watching this in the theater at the time, if it would have been so obvious. I don't know. Well, I'm saying that I think that they maybe felt the obligation to do so because what, what other tradition is there to fall back on other than like Giallo and stuff, really? And I mean, I think they, the, the whodunit aspect was almost a requirement of you know some aspect of of these early films that was carried on quite a bit, but that's not something this movie patented. That's for sure. It's something it's inheriting. That's a it's a traditional old school kind of a notion of the well. I don't know who is the killer. I mean, you could almost say like Agatha Christie or something is, is you know is a source of that kind of thinking. But I I my caveat to all of that is that it it is also literally pivotal to the end of the movie and the end of the movie is part of the great strength of the movie so i'm i'm almost forgiving it right there because it results in this tremendously subtle and yet disturbing payoff that i don't know what this movie would be like if it had a traditional ending like not to get ahead, but obviously I think that this ending is brilliant and nobody else does that. I've never seen that ending before. No, I agree, John. Like I said, I, I think that I think this all works as far as what it's building to. So no, I'm, I'm on board a hundred percent. Where are I'll you? I'll reiterate that my, my, my quibble with the, with the sort of like whodunit discussion of this film is that a whodunit only works if you have, more than one character who could have done it. This movie gives you one person. True. Yeah. But I mean, I just, I see like the, the flaws in the theory that it's him are just so screamingly obvious to me that that's why I'm, I'm struggling with it. But yeah, I mean, you can always assume that he's just some lunatic that sneaks into the house. But if it is a character that we know, yeah, they don't give you anyone but the boyfriend. So, yeah, look, if we really want like poke holes and like what's what's wrong with like the the mystery structure of this film, like the thing that really nags me is that the the the, the crux of the film is like the calls are coming from inside the house, which is something that's been apparent to us from like minute fifteen in the movie. Well, how was it first? Like I, the the time that it was apparent to me was when he starts like quoting things that they said in the house what what made it so obvious to you he's in the ad he moves into the attic in the first <laughs> oh in the first act of the film oh okay 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 in the first scene right 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 yeah duh yeah no i i know like i you're right i i wasn't thinking about that the right way no i never thought that he wasn't in the house right i never thought that he was somewhere else. Yeah, we we keep track of his whereabouts. I I guess you just sort of blew my mind because I never even thought that was like 
um, like the movie was leaning on that as a surprise that we were supposed to think he was somewhere else. I, I guess I just never even like thought that through. Well, I mean, let's, let's, let's push forward to the many, many scenes of watching people running around trying to track phone calls to figure out where the call is coming from. Even though we know exactly where the antagonist is for the entire film. And yet, like, it, it plays somehow. I, I, I agree with you. Yeah. That, that part is especially mm. weird. But, like, when you just break it down to its, like, narrative elements, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Right, right. Like, the idea that, that, that the audience is supposed to be like, <gasps> like, yeah, that doesn't, that doesn't make any sense at all. So, wow. I don't even know what to do with that because <laughs> I just didn't. Um, and yet... I feel like if you just called John Saxon at home, God bless him if he was still alive, and you were like, hey, John, I've been getting these harassing phone calls, he'd be like, they're coming from inside the house. (laughs) (laughs) I know that that is like a a urban legend thing, and it started with a babysitter and stuff, and I believe the very first iteration of this script, like, it was called The Babysitter or something like that, and it was just dealing with that urban legend. So I, I suspect that that was a, a relic of that approach, which, yeah, I think A Stranger Calls, and I'm not exactly sure where that began in film, but they they definitely weren't trying to, like, we're the first people to uh, trot that idea out there, and people are going to be blown away by it, because I do think it was... Like I think we've all, haven't you guys? Like I, I'm sure in my childhood, I I remember hearing the story of the babysitter, and you know the oh, calls sure. are coming from inside the house, right? I just looked it up. When a stranger calls it was '79, so you're talking five years. The the actual movie. Now who knows when the the sort of myth propagated? But the the movie was about five years after this. So. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, let's put that aside for now and forge ahead. So yeah, everybody is uh, running out to the park because it's uh, the townsfolk are sweeping, and this is an old trope as well, like the search party kind of thing. You see it a lot in the '70s and '80s. I think to this day as well. Um, it feels real as an element in its execution here, and the fact that these people. Um, you know, are banding together to make the grim discovery of, of a body. And it's a very cold night. This is literally after midnight, apparently, that they're filming it, and John Saxon had just gotten off the plane. Uh, he, he, he wanted to be in the movie, and then somebody, this is embarrassing, like, said, oh, yeah, we hired Edmund O'Brien. I'm so sorry that they told you that you were cast and then like a couple weeks later Edmund O'Brien like flew out to Toronto and they're having dinner with the producers and stuff and he's like well I'm going to go up to my room and uh, uh, for a little while and they're like you're not at your hotel you're at a restaurant and they realized that he had uh, dementia and he was frail and there's no way he could have done this scene in the middle of the night and Toronto. So they desperately called John Saxon back, awkward, and were like, do you still want to be in the movie? And he, he got on a plane and came out, and a couple hours later, he's he's doing this scene. God bless him. Yep. Well, 
I just hope that someone on a snowmobile in this scene crashed into Ben Tramer and fucking <laughs> killed him. <laughs> so we see this like weird silhouette looking at the house. Who the fuck is this? Guy's already in there, right? He's sitting down. Pure del- oh Pure yeah, this is the boyfriend. Del- right? Yeah, you're right. Yeah. yeah, this is the boyfriend, yeah. So yeah, they're fucking with us again as far as like making us think it's him but even though we know as rich astutely points out we know where the killer is he's already in the house so mrs mac is preparing to leave oh okay so we we cut back to the the cat who is alive apparently uh this was news to me licking the plastic bag on on claire's face his master his mistress which is dark cats disgusting animals absolutely my cat my cat would 100 percent be like trying to eat my fingers (laughs) apparently they had to spray the the bag with catnip to get the cat to do that and they kept throwing the cat at her and she would maintain that posture while it scratched the shit out of her legs (laughs) (laughs) again Evil, evil animals, and I and I say that as a loving cat owner. Yeah, somebody said I think it was her that 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 cat was very unprofessional and it, not easy to work with. <laughs> nothing got nothing on the dog in the thing. That's that's all you need. <laughs> no, apparently everyone on this movie was really easy to work with except the cat. Is there anyone in this film more obvious cannon fodder than Mrs. Mack? Yeah, we know. Her her card was punched a long time ago. The uh, second she pulled that bottle of rum out of the toilet. Yeah, I'm. I no matter, every time I've seen this, I'm always surprised she makes it as far as she does. Yeah. yeah. So you you hear those strings and you're like, oh, she's done. There's no joke coming this time. I I do think this kill is really interesting though. Mm-hmm. Like how the the level of patience. The, the way that I, I don't know how close I am to the same frame that you guys are, but it's like the the way that like Billy waits mm-hmm. with this hook in his hands with the, with the hook like yeah like it like it, it wants her to see the tableau before taking action. That's right. That's right. Yeah. I mean, I don't know why they have this kind of hook and pulley in this attic, but whatever. I'm going with it. Canadian sorority houses. <laughs> it's a little known fact, but yeah, they have them. Yeah. So yeah. You can't she... build them. <laughs> what? No, go ahead. She no, sees no, no, she sees Claire and you know freezes and and slowly looks over and there he is, like his point of view, hands trembling on the hook. He swings it. It's very cinematic and dynamic. It grabs her and of course she's lifted up because the hook is solidly impaled in her and her her legs kick and we cut to her cabbie uh this was like again one of those like dark little ironies her fucking cab was waiting outside you know she could have just walked out the door and she'd be fine but she's you know poking around in the attic looking for the the cat and the cabbie comes to the door uh this is one of the producers and uh you know, and angrily leaves. She was this fucking close to getting out of this movie alive. And then after this, we get a POV shot of the killer trashing the attic. And I, I think this is one of those things like Leatherface, 
where the situation seems to have spiraled out of control for him. It doesn't feel like a perfect killing spree well executed. He's he's not in control of the situation. Like he's he's somewhat panicked by the turn of events. It's kind of how I read it anyway. Yeah, it's it's an interesting sort of like display of like frustration, like more so than like mania. I, I agree with you. It, it reads like something is is amiss. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's there's a need there's a need to express it. I don't know. I I didn't I didn't listen necessarily like read quite as like deeply as, into it as you did. But I think it makes sense what you're saying. Yeah, like it, 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 it feels like he's not performing for an audience or anything. Like he's just sort of becoming unglued. But uh, but it is one of those nice moments that like I was referring to earlier where it's like you get that you're getting this sort of in a weird way, you're getting like an intimate moment with with the with the killer that is like not something that you frequently get, especially later on where the killer really becomes this like kind of like alien entity you know yes but there, there's something yeah. about this that's like almost opening it up for you to like empathize with him to some degree no absolutely actually this... like this is a good point to posit because i want to 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 talk about like the dad seeing what he sees but the point that that you just made rich um Let's deal with that first. We've discussed with the Maniac movies specifically as we look at these slasher films, the idea that there's a breed of these killers that you can really kind of have sympathy for because this isn't Ted Bundy. You know, this isn't somebody who's living out their sexual gratification and they just don't, they're amoral, they're uh, sociopathic. They don't care if we like it or not. They they have to. I mean, yeah, it's a compulsion they'd probably rather not have, but um, they're really sort of on some level living their best life versus these, you know, tortured, tormented human beings that are, you know, riddled with the the guilt and the, you know, the 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 absolute inability to function in society in a sense that like we would feel compassion and empathy for anyone who was mentally ill, right? Who just wasn't, who was delusional or un- unable to process reality. Um, like it's a, it's, it's a horrible, horrible fate. Like one of the worst things that I, mean, I wouldn't wish it on, on anyone. And the fact is that with these characters, like a byproduct of that torment, this perpetual torment that they're in, is that they they can become irrationally violent, um, but they're living in a hell of their own, you know, parents' creation or their DNA's pr- creation or their uh, experiences' creation, their abuse, whatever it is, you know, and um, it's it, it's really sad, you know, and I I think that this guy clearly fits into that that paradigm. So the reason I wanted to to pause it here with this dad is that this guy's acting again is so subtle in that like uh, this woman is screaming because they found a body and you know the dad is rushing to the scene because he's dreading the fact that it's going to be his daughter and you see him process it in this moment oh my god that's horrible it's a corpse it's a it's a dead girl oh thank god it's it's not claire 
And just, you know, from a writing like standpoint, like what are you going to do in a movie? What are, what are you choosing to dramatize? How amazingly fucked up and complex a moment to put in a in a man's eyes. It's it's just such dramatic gold. What a what an opportunity for the actor, really, to play that that series of emotions. Yeah, I agree with you. The, 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 this moment also like stood out to me. I think uh, personally, like they, I think they actually withhold the 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 answers to like what the body is um, a little too long. But I agree, like in terms of like performance for the actor, like I thought I found it notable. Like you see, he's horrified and he doesn't want to be happy, but he's also at the same time like relief is there, and it's subtle, you know. Like he's not broad. How poorly contained that crime scene really is. There's per person after person wandering up to this body, <laughs> including yeah, the victim's mother. And, and and he also has to like look at her and see that she it, it is her daughter, right? I I I have this real like nitpicking concern with this uh this there's this Olivia Hussey phone call here. She mm -hmm. has a conversation. Mm -hmm. Oh no, we're not right now. She's talking to, to Billy. I'm sorry. I stay. I believe she's about to get on the phone with the with with the crew at the police station. I think she talks to Peter, maybe um her boyfriend. But no, this is obviously Billy here. Yeah. And she's like, for God's sake, what are you doing? And, you know, he's doing the, I know what you did, Billy. <laughs> did, you, did you read that whole note about how, like, the, the, the actor, one of the actors, like, reading these lines was, like, hanging upside down while yeah. recording? Like, they were, like, trying all sorts of sort of, like. Yeah, he wanted to compress his like, thorax, like, to, to create. Yeah, like, avant-garde techniques to, to. I mean, it, look. To some extent, it like achieves it. Like it is, it is a unsettling, uh, you know, cadence and and sound that, that Billy emits. So, yeah. I mean, I'm all for it. Um, it taking it that seriously. Um, that's that's what really making a role yours is all about. And what's great is that nobody associated this with this movie, like is, as is often the case, nobody thought it was anything going to be anything special. And you know, like you do like the composer I, I know was like, if I'd known this movie would be around 40 years from now, like 50 years from now, I would have taken certain things out and done things differently. And, you know, I wish, and I think that's always the case. Um, you know, like if you really knew your work would be studied to this degree. All right. So Peter is telling Jess that uh, we're getting married and she has to tell him point blank, Peter, I don't want to marry you. And meanwhile, she's on the phone. Yeah. It's not because of the turtleneck though. <laughs> he does have this just like douchey musician vibe. Like he takes himself so seriously, and she's she's on the phone with the cops. By the way, go ahead. Isn't the way that he's introduced in this scene? I I believe is like the house is locked. Like she's the first one in the house, so the house is like theoretically locked up, but he's been in there taking a nap. 
is like all like kind of playing into the red herring element of it all of like right oh like how is he inside the house right he just happens to already be in there right yeah and she didn't let him in yeah it's suspicious also i want to let myself into other people's houses and take naps marco kidder's like, done that, that. Kind of... you need you need to move to lake mungo for that rich <laughs> uh ann hesh has done that also that <laughs> ann hesh marco kidder yeah <laughs> that's, a, that's a deep cut <laughs> You're in the right neighborhood, Rich. Is is the gist of it? <laughs> oh yeah. So this thing. So this this is nitpicky, but mm -hmm. she had the information that a little girl was murdered, but she just got off the phone with them at the police station, and no one brought that up. Yeah. How does she know that? Like he just told exactly. her exactly. Yeah. It's clearly like it's it's clearly was like it's like I think it was like cut from the dialogue. Like I think it was like an editorial issue, but it really bumped me for some reason because it's like it's sort of alluded to on the phone call, but that she has the information afterwards, and especially because in this film, everything is reliant on what you can get over the phone. Right. Like I was thinking about that earlier with like the father. Like the father is really informationally speaking like he's hamstrung by like what he can like there are no cell phones to like check in on his daughter right so he's so of course he's just reliant on like the ability to communicate yeah yeah i mean it, it's hard for us to understand by the way it's hard for him to understand like she's explaining that she had other things she wanted to do in her life and even though he may have seen his musical aspirations crash and burn, she's not ready to give up all of her ambitions because his plans have changed. And it's so rational, you know, it's so logical, the argument that she gives him. And he just doesn't get it at all. Well, no, the turtleneck is cutting off the blood flow to his brain. <laughs> so he, can't, he can't think rationally. You know, and I can understand how like, I sympathize with him, like, how devastating this would be to hear. Um, but it, you know, like, he, it's not really his decision. Well, in the, in the wake of having, of having sabotaged his own uh, audition, like, yeah, right. that, I feel like it's, it's, he's like, I've made this huge sacrifice for you. Even though you didn't actually ask me to make it, um, I don't know. It's a, it, it is sort of a complicated position to be in, which makes him a convincing red herring in spite of all the other logical evidence against it. Yeah, I mean, I understand how his world is coming apart here. Like, I, I absolutely see that. So... I love this, like, cop, like, the, the cynical detective that's... He doesn't even have lines in this movie. He's just always laughing at how stupid Nash is or something and, you know, whatever's going on. Like, you get the idea that this is the jaded homicide cop and uh, he and, and Fuller are uh, simpatico compared to the uniformed guys. Mm -hmm. You mean John Saxon as the jaded homicide detective? 
No, like he's he's I don't know that he's a homicide detective, but there's this other cop that's always hanging around in the background and they just sort of make fun of Nash together. Yeah. Like you can no, see I, the guy. I was I was I was being oh. sarcastic. Oh, okay. The the, I, the John Saxon is the jaded detective in a in a horror movie. I don't know. It doesn't it just doesn't jive with me, <laughs> but with his persona. Yeah, he's yeah. usually very idealistic and <laughs> This, guy, this guy's fucking code, dude. I would just arrest this guy right away. <laughs> God, that coat pisses me off. I've heard people say that before. Like, the coat is really a sticking point for some people in this. Uh... So, yeah, we get that Nash is not uh, detective material. It's a it's a little character subplot that's amusing, but, but dark. He's just too provincial to recognize an Italian word. And we see more of the sad and tortured relationship uh, in the line, it's not just like getting a wart removed, um, having an abortion, which Billy will use later. And she sadly takes that to mean that it's it's Peter saying it, not that Billy might be in the house. Like, yeah, I guess like how I reconcile that whole in the house thing is this, you know, we may know, but like we're just dying for the characters to figure it out. And they never, you know, I mean, they do eventually, I mean, but. Sure. This, this is the, this is the Hitchcock, like the, the, you'd show the bomb under the table. He's threatening, you know, we're playing that game and the cop suspects it. We really like process Saxon processing it. as he like this long take of him looking at, troubled after Peter walks by him picking up the clue that something's happening here. But how old is John Saxon here? I would say like 40s for sure. You think? John John Saxon was 46 for 30 years. Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> totally. The same age as he was in A Nightmare on Elm Street and <laughs> Tenebra. Sadly, I, I watched some special features and stuff, and uh, he participates in, like, this panel where, you know, he, in 2015 or 16, and it, it's it's rough. Like, he's barely, the idea that there's a mic in front of him and he should speak in, to it to be heard, like, doesn't really register with him. Um but like, there's a a couple of interviews, like just a couple of years before, where he's still talking, you know, uh, knowledgeably and passionately about the movie. It's it's rough. I heard that John Saxon wrote a script for Black <laughs> Christmas Two, wherein <laughs> the Manson family was actually responsible for the murders. <laughs> oh, good one, Vic. <laughs> I feel, like, I feel like he was doing a lot of cocaine at this point. <laughs> no. uh, so I, I, I do, I do want to like to like bring to the forefront, like going back to the whole like the killers inside the house thing. This is the beginning of how much investment we're going to put into the plot line of like tracking the phone calls. Like the the telephone engineer is basically like a C character that gets introduced at this yeah. point who like who like whose exploits we have to follow over the course of the next act. But like <laughs> he just got introduced and, and called into like home base right. and established right. himself. Like 
we're we're expected to follow this like it's a Mission Impossible plot. <laughs> but you know, it is important for them to make that connection because, like, theoretically, that could save the day, right? Like, if they if they figure that out in time, these people could be rescued. I mean, poor Phyllis, Andrea Martin here, like. She's like Mrs. Mack, you know, she's she's the last person to die um, at the killer's hand and on screen. Well, sort of on screen. And, like, it's so close. Like, if she had just made it another ten minutes, maybe she could have survived this movie. The idea that, like, you were going to track where the phone call came from, you know, to us... That's like, it's the fucking number that pops up my phone every, right. every time somebody calls. You know what I mean? Back in 1974, that was the height of technology. That was like CIA shit. And they get a lot of tension out of it. So, uh, Andrea Martin does a great job. I mean, I think you feel her pain for another human being. Um, it, she's been keeping it in, but like Barb, she knows this is bad. Here's where she's crying. Yeah, I just know Claire is dead. I can just feel it, she says. I just think it's wild that they don't know their fucking home is the most dangerous place to be. And I think that's a great concept. Like, the question is always, why don't you leave? Well, they don't know he's in there with them. It's simple, but so effective. So unsettling. Like, this movie could be almost defined as, like, in a Jaws sense, just when you thought it was safe to go to bed it's like that's the worst thing you can do in this movie is go to bed i do appreciate the moment i think maybe this is even what you're alluding to is that like later when margot kidder there's one point where she asks about uh margot kidder's character and she's like oh no no she's fine she's asleep yep and i think at that point she's already dead yeah she is Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, like, there's this horrible point later where um, Jess is just desperately yelling Barb's name and Phil's name, and, you know, they don't... They're supposed to just be upstairs, and they're, they are, but they're dead. It, it It's just, like, that sense of futility of that gesture, and her heroism at the end is really for naught. Because she could have just left the house, but she won't leave those two, her friends, behind. Well, I think it speaks to as well the part of the the slasher film revolution was the idea that horror was was coming home to the suburbs, right? These none of these people are in secluded right. cabins. They're not at the Overlook Hotel. This is just at your home. And so the places that you feel safe all of a sudden became places where you could be attacked and killed. And I don't think it's an accident that these films started coming out in the 1970s when we literally had so many serial killers operating in the United States that mm-hmm. you had the, the Hillside Stranglers in Boston. You had, uh, you know, the Night Stalker in Los Angeles. The idea uh, of home invasions. Uh, was was prevalent in urban and suburban places, like places that people used to feel safe. All of a the sudden, there th- this was something that that just happened. 
And so I, I think that's especially relevant to this to this subgenre. And again, in the spirit of, of Jaws, it's like, you know, taking away something that you felt safe doing. And I just want to point out, I, I don't think any film does that with more clarity than Blood Rage. <laughs> it, it was well, so shafted. It, it truly comments on society in the era in which it was made. Uh, no, I I read something about there was a serial killer killing, I think, gay men in the the 70s that was operating at the same time as two other serial killers. And so part of the reason they got away with it was that they kept finding the bodies and not being sure which serial killer to attribute it to. And so the idea that all of a sudden in the 1970s we started to have these movies about killers breaking into homes and killing people. I mean, it really was something that was prevalent in everyone's consciousness in a way that, that it hadn't been before that and, and really hasn't been since. The crazy thing about that in a, in a like larger sense is that the serial killer has been replaced by the shooter. But that was the thing that was tormenting us and making us, you know, as a society, of course, I mean, uh, feel so unsafe. And the irony is that, like, you can't be an effective serial killer anymore because forensics are so good and the evidence is so difficult to hide. And, like, there are very, very few serial killers operating anymore because you can't get away with it but you know like i don't know if they're the same kinds of people or not probably not really like in a purely psychological sense but we have this new scourge you know this this new thing that um because of the time frame involved people can get away with and that you know it's just like a sign of the times, I guess. But yeah, for that period of time, um, it was relatively easy to get away with with being a serial killer, and it, of course, captured the the dark imagination of of the nation as far as like what you know tapped into our our existential fear, especially again in in relation to the the idea that your home is is your ref, refuge. And, you know, just nothing is nothing is scarier than someone at the foot of your bed, you know, when you're at your most vulnerable in the middle of the night and they have bad intentions for you and your loved ones. It's, it's just I don't, I, don't, I don't think anything could be really more mind breakingly horrible than that. Right. Yeah. And, and Black Christmas is just a, a perfect distillation of that. That person is is not is in your house the whole time, and and like the 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 film like continually revolves around the idea of people going to sleep, you know, like having like they're at their their most vulnerable, or you know even like just you could say walking into your closet or. Uh, you know, the, 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 the things that people do in this movie uh, that result in them 
being killed are often yeah like even phil she just goes into barb's room thinks barb is is alive and the door closes and you're like oh my god he was standing there holding the door right and once she got in he just closed the door it's it's like so simple like that's what almost makes it more chilling that this is not not some meticulous bind torture kill kind of killer that you know monitors people for weeks and then you know figures out what time of day to break into their house or something it, it's almost worse in a way how like basic his mo is i wanted to note that like the scene that we I, I at least I paused it on, is that Barb is the weak one now. She's sucking on an inhaler. This is the last time we see her alive, being consoled by, by Jess. And she's so vulnerable all of a sudden. And it it's just such a far cry from the Barb that we met at the beginning of the film. And uh, she... They, they dismiss, like it comes up, the idea that Barb saw him. Uh, he's already there in the room. And they both kind of dismiss the idea that Billy was right there at Barb's bedside. But he was. And he will be back with terrible consequences the moment that Claire, uh, not Claire, that Jess leaves the room. Which is something that comes back over and over again in the slasher genre, right? I saw him. He was here. No, you didn't. That was, you know, you, that was something else. That was the wind. That was something in your mind. Like we're constantly dismissing the fears of people uh, who are bringing up something very plausible, uh, especially at the time when this was made. I will say this is we're coming into like the most, as you point out, where like Billy is in in the context of this scene. We're coming up on the most aggressive kill of this. And I mean that in the sense of, like, not just, like, the action itself. But if you think about it, like, Claire was sort of like a trap in in theory, right? Like, he's kind of, like, lying in, in wait. Mrs. Mack was, like, really the case of, like, she sort of, like, stumbled into his territory. We're entering the first time where it's, like, you're actually seeing, like, active, like, action pursued on Billy's part in terms of, like being like invasive and like getting into her room and sort of seeking out this kill, which I guess is like an, an escalation of the, uh, you know, the, the rules of engagement, mm. you know, that, mm-hmm. that we're, um, but anyways, it's, it's, a, it's an evolution. It's interesting that this character does not have a sort of a super strict MO other than the phone calls themselves. But in terms of like the slashing is a little all over the place psychologically. Well, Rich, an... I do just want to agree with you that, that Mrs. Mack was asking for it more than any other character. You don't, you don't go poking your nose in where it doesn't belong. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he, he is an extremely weird and, and passive-aggressive killer. You know, the very fact that he apparently is more than content to just kind of lurk around... He, he he doesn't seem especially compelled to to have confrontation. You know, like I think part of the fact that we don't see him is that he doesn't want to be seen. You know, like there's no 
there's no idea that like he really wants to lord over someone his control over them or you know intimidate them or or something like that that you often find with serial killers this is my chance to introduce a weird personal story but i'm going to put it in here great so when i was in my 20s probably in college I was living with a girl. I was in college, but on the weekends, I would come home to see my girlfriend, uh, and I would stay in her place. Oh, yeah, your girlfriend from Canada. Sure. Yeah, I heard about that. Fair enough. Her name is is Tanya. Okay, she's probably a listener now. Um, But So we were lying on her bed watching a movie, and I noticed someone peeking in the window at us and i told i the absolutely terrifying moment right like just really like clear that someone she was in she was living in a detached garage that had been converted into a two-bedroom apartment and there was someone literally just like looking through the window at us she was in her underwear i was in you know my boxer shorts or whatever and so I kind of leaned over to her and said, listen, there's somebody looking in through the window. Don't like, you know, I'm, I'm going to go outside. I want you to call the police. And I had to roll out of bed very quickly, grabbed whatever, I feel like a curtain rod or something that was leaning up and like ran outside. The guy ran off. The police eventually showed up. And that was what they said was they said, look, People who are into watching aren't really a threat. They don't really want to come in. That's why they're watching, which was just a, a, a absolutely bizarre like insight into people like this, right? That that was the idea was that someone like Billy is looking at people and he only reacts when he's forced into this sort of confrontation. And Rich is right. This is the scene where he instigates the confrontation, which is different than what we've seen from him up to this point. And now we're we're up to an hour into this film. So it's a very strange psychology to try and get your head into. But I'm not sure that this, this strains credulity when I watch it. Well, I hate to jump ahead. As you know, I absolutely hate it, but there's no way I can avoid it because of the conversation that we're having. But a bit down the road, we see that he has murdered the police officer in his patrol vehicle who's parked outside of this sorority house. And to me, that was where I was jarred by the deviation from how I understood his MO. Because while I take your point... Like, the idea of him killing a sleeping girl, like, that is not very uh, ballsy, right? Like, she's as non-threatening as as one could possibly be. So that felt more consistent. But the idea, I was thinking, like, how does exactly does he kill this cop? When you're, like, deciding to do something, the, the level of guts and aggression to take on a presumably alert armed police officer in his vehicle. I mean, I assume like the way he slid his throat, he he obviously got the jump on him somehow. But like that was a a move where he it it didn't seem like the way I understood Billy 
that he would be like, I got to take that guy out, even though it makes sense. You know, if you're thinking of things logically, which I don't think I didn't expect Billy to be doing, but that was a big move, I think. I mean, I'm just going to jump in and do the forensics here. Like, (laughs) we're in Canada, right? So we all know that that cop was a up at 5 a.m. ice fishing <laughs> and had at least three beers before his shift. So, like, to say he's, like, alert, I think it's a bit of a stretch, John. And I, I will honestly go with you that I think that's the only way it happened. Is that, but I mean, okay, first, though, Billy had to leave the house, go you know, on the street, kill someone in more or less public and come back. But the only way he would do that is, yes, if the cop is dozing behind the wheel. By the way, I don't know how the window was open either, but whatever. To to, to me, you're right. Actually, the fact that he leaves the house to go do it seems like the most difficult detail to, like, track in terms of, like, why. It it feels a little outside what what this character does as far as from the limited sample size we have. Agreed. Yeah, it's a bit of a reach. Um, yeah, to posit that he he leaves and then comes back in order to accomplish that daring mission, which yeah is not really consistent with the behavior that that we see. Well, guys, I think uh, we've probably hit a, a logical point to to cut this episode in half. Um, any any final thoughts before we say farewell for tonight? A resounding silence, just like the house. <laughs> Phil, Barb, Rich, Vic. <laughs> I was trying to think. I was, I was, I was all primed to get into our, our glass menagerie scene. So I, I know, feel like I, 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 I agree with you. Like good, I agree with you. Good point. Because I, I could talk about that fucking choir for, for half an hour. Yeah. So. I think we're going to make a meal of this scene. Is uh, Barb's death, I think we will. Uh, we'll want to get into some detail next time. Vic, how about you, man? It's painful to cut it off at this point. Like, yeah. this is... To me, this revisitation has just confirmed that this movie absolutely belongs in the the final four because you're right. There's the, the, the mix of humor and horror the setting the camera work the psychology of the killer the the place that it lands in the history of this subgenre like you could see all of that in the first hour of this and we haven't gotten to the best part so yeah it's this is a this is a really good fucking movie and i've really enjoyed watching it with you guys here here man likewise likewise All right, well, until next time, adios.
kill you. 